Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about two awards-nominated movies, I Care A Lot and Hillbilly Elegy. And to join me to talk about both of them is my friend Fred Cobb. Fred, thanks for being back here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about those two movies in our Top 10 podcast a few weeks from now, right? I mean, like, these could both be... Oscar, I don't, I don't think I care about getting an Oscar yeah. nomination movie. It could be the Oscar-nominated Hillbilly Elegy that'll, you know, uh, join the ranks of like, you know, Suicide Squad and other things of that nature to, you know, Orbit. Uh, yeah, to like somehow have Oscar nominations but be like mostly reviled by everyone that. Uh, saw them uh but we're first going to talk about i care a lot which is a movie that a, a lot of people saw even if uh it's not going to necessarily get a lot of awards it's an, the newest movie on netflix uh from uh writer director jay blakeson who I, I the only movie of his i've ever seen was uh one of my favorite bad movies of all time the fifth wave which came out in uh 2016 <laughs> starring chloe grace moretz nick robertson nick robinson and uh leah shriver but he did a couple other movies, one called The Descent and The Disappearance of Alice Creed. Uh, it looks like he wrote The Descent. The only other one he directed was one called The Disappearance of Alice Creed, which I haven't seen. But I Care A Lot is, uh, was number one on Netflix last week, which means a ton of people are watching it. So I had to see what it was all about. I really hadn't even paid much mind to it, even though it stars Rosamund Pike, who uh, is a pretty big star in her own right. Uh, she plays a character named Marla Grayson, who is a Massachusetts-based legal guardian uh for largely for elderly people that are, are allegedly incapacitated and uh need someone to take care of them because they are a danger to themselves and can't live on their own and she runs a business uh where she does that except she is also extremely shady and has a lot of different backroom dealings with nursing homes and primary care providers for the elderly that help her uh get patient new new clients to funnel into the guardianship system and uh she's able to like make a lot of money off of them by doing that one of her doctor contacts finds one woman that's a good potential client that she can funnel to marla who is an older lady who lives on her own her name is jennifer peterson and she had a long career and doesn't have any family so no one to uh you know look out for her better interest if a doctor with uh, unsavory intentions happens to come about and so they run their scheme and they get her into the system uh she's uh, jennifer's played by diane weist and all of a sudden though it turns out jennifer might have some other people in her life that are actually do care about her whereabouts including a son who is a shady character of sorts who we come to learn more about played by peter dinklage and a uh, sleazeball lawyer named uh dean erickson played by chris messina uh Marla's partner, both in life and in business, is her. Her name is Fran. She's played by Isa Gonzalez, who you might know from uh, Baby Driver. Uh, and yeah, I th- this movie starts out, Fred, looking like it's going to be like an interesting look into like a side of our healthcare industry that we don't think about that often. And then it just turns into something totally different. And I think that's where the movie probably loses its way, though you really didn't like this movie. So I'm wondering if you even liked the first half of the movie as much as I did. Uh, How did you ultimately feel about I Care A Lot? I hated it. (laughs) A lot. (laughs) So I think it's probably fair to say that this was my least favorite uh, movie experience of 2020. Wow. I mean, technically it was released to the public in 2021, but it's competing for awards in the 2020 season, so I think we can count it as part of that. I don't think that I like the first half at all either, but I think there is promise during the first 20 minutes Mm -hmm. because of what you already said. There is a component here 
about taking advantage of a massive loophole in our healthcare system and monetizing a scheme that really doesn't seem all that far-fetched. I mean, maybe you know this from uh, some of the older members of your family, but they'll get called sometimes from people who want to take advantage and they'll tell them about all of these great deals that are going on and, oh, there's a lawsuit pending against you. Oh, you haven't paid your taxes. Why don't you give us some of your personal information, maybe your social security number, and we'll take care of it for you. And of course, because older people uh, aren't necessarily as familiar with some of those uh, logistics and maybe because they... Or the, uh, or, or the jargon that might tip you off to something being a scam. Mm-hmm, exactly. So a lot of times schemes like that will work on them. Uh, so I do think that the general premise is genuinely intriguing and has a lot of promise. And, you know, the idea that Marla Grayson is an awful protagonist isn't necessarily a problem either, because um, the movie that I kept coming back to was Nightcrawler, um, which I don't think it's a controversial take to say that that has one of the best scripts of the past decade, though. So Dan Gilroy was a lot smarter about using a very shady protagonist and carrying him through the entire movie without ever getting to a point where there's even an iota of sympathy for that person. Uh this movie, on the other hand, makes the colossal mistake of pitting Marla Grayson, a predator and sociopath, against a Russian mobster. And eventually you get to a point where you kind of have to root for the Russian mobster to save the day. And then yeah, yeah. later you get to a point where the movie tries to pivot in the opposite direction, where we're supposed to feel sorry for her because all of a sudden she becomes a victim of her own schemes. And it just doesn't work because she is such an awful protagonist. So the movie is tonally messy, to say the least. And it just got to a point where I thought the entire premise was incredibly offensive. Because, <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes I don't read your – I often, I usually don't read your, read your letterbox reviews before we do the podcast because I like kind of going in fresh, not knowing everything you have to say. But I couldn't resist clicking on it when I saw you gave like – I think one star, maybe I don't even. I one think and you, a half. one and a half. Okay, still. So when you when you go to an extreme like that, I I had to click on it, and I so th- that did jump out to me when you, when you said Nightcrawler because that's a movie I'm fond of too, and um I, and I just thought about it. yeah, like it's interesting to think about what movies are out there that just you know have bad people as protagonists and uh, mm-hmm. what 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 makes those movies work. I think is an interesting uh, thing to think about. I think there's a couple distinctions with Nightcrawler, though. I do I did like that your head went there because uh, I, I had one not as creative reference point but uh with respect to nightcrawler i think it's interesting because uh yeah you, you know you slowly trip away at this guy who's not likable to the point where you really can't cheer for him but i think this is like such an extreme like i almost had to shut this movie off after like 20 minutes i once it becomes <laughs> once not not a bad way like i thought it was being effective like once they do what they are doing once it becomes apparent what they are doing to the uh to the jennifer peters king character i was like oh my god this is like awful uh and and even the air of legitimacy uh, like you talk about phone scams but like the air of legitimacy that is lent to it by having like a doctor and a judge i mean the judge isn't like a bad person he's just like he's being presented with what he knows but i mean that has all those around it it's like even scarier that to think that could happen and nightcrawler i mean this guy's not a good guy but like his whole thing is he's like exploiting murder scenes you know he's not Mm -hmm. like uh actively harming the people themselves he might be harming their families by exploiting their loss but he's not causing like direct harm to someone in the same way that like marla is affecting other people's livelihoods this guy is just like you know capturing and exploiting something to get paid off himself 
but not like actually causing someone's life to become like materially worse necessarily. And so it, it, you're not as revolted initially, even though it's like it's a very unique concept for a movie. And so it's in, in, it's almost more intriguing. Not not to say this one isn't. I think this is like part of what gave this movie some promise for me is that it was also unique. But it was just in Nightcrawler. It's like okay, like this guy's clearly kind of creepy, and what he's doing is not right. But like I didn't have the same visceral reaction to Nightcrawler as I did to seeing what Marla Grayson's schemes were. So she's not likable. And I guess my thing with this movie is that if you're gonna have a movie with someone that you don't with someone that you don't like. Uh, especially to this extent, I don't have to have someone that I want to cheer for in a movie, but I think if I'm going to have, like, movies involving bad people, I do want all of them to, like, you know, be, like, hyper-competent and mm. um, yep. and, and kind of smart because there's a couple of points in this movie where I'm just, like, you know, I think that, like, if I was in Marla's shoes, I would just, like, I would get out now. And she has, like, multiple points at which, like, it becomes apparent that, like, maybe you shouldn't keep going down this path. And I get it. There has to be a movie. She can't just decide that, like, oh, okay, I'm done, like, an hour into the movie. Like, then there's no movie. So I get it, but I go on in a version of this movie where it was, like, it made more sense for her to, like, make the decisions she was making because otherwise then I just kind of lost respect for her intelligence. Like, she obviously comes up with a creative scheme at the end of the movie. But I guess I also saw, like, the potential for a much more interesting uh, legal kind of procedural thriller type of thing where she's having to navigate this web because to me the best scene in the movie is the scene with Chris Messina in her office and I mean it's just very well written it's very well acted he he really is like he really is able to ham it up as just like a scummy mob lawyer and I like that and she is able to match wits with him there even if I think she does some dumb stuff later on so I would have rather the movie like almost stayed more within the legal guardianship system and the different loopholes and how they can compete against each other in that regard. And I, I like Peter Dinklage fine as an actor, but like it just kind of went in, off into like another direction where I just didn't really care about this person being really stubborn and fighting the mob because why would you ever fight the mob if you don't have to? Uh, one more thing. I thought, you know, an example of a movie where, uh, or not even a movie. I, do you watch Better Call Saul? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, well, you know the premise at least, though. It, I mean, because I'm guessing sure. you've watched Breaking sure. Bad, and you know who Saul Goodman yep. is, and it's how he becomes him. And, you know, he has, like, a rough go of it in that show early on in his legal career that drives him to become the kind of lawyer you, you ultimately see on Breaking Bad. And it's like, okay, I get it why you're doing this stuff. Like, you're, like, really down in the dumps. He has an office in the first part of that show that is, like, in the back of a Chinese nail salon. Like, he is really, like, roughing it. And, like, here... Like, we're led to at least see at the beginning that Marla is very successful. And we, I really, we didn't really talk about yet about what this movie's trying to say about America and capitalism and the economy and all that. And it's clear that she's driven by some principles about how, what you need to do to make it in America. But the fact is, in a way, she's already made it. Like, she might not be a billionaire yet or anything, but we're led to believe she has a very successful practice. So it's like, I didn't really think she needed to be taking these risks that she's ultimately taking once it becomes apparent just how risky it is when it's like, hey, you already have a nice house. In a thriving business by what by what we've already been shown, and I don't know, it just kind of lost me that this character just kind of went off and did some ridiculous stuff. When I saw a lot more interesting corners of this movie that were left uninvestigated. Yeah, and that's really the core issue, I think. Marla Grayson, she's psychotic, uh, she's ruthless, callous, the worst protagonist imaginable, but she's decidedly not stupid, because. Clearly, she has some sort of business acumen that allowed her to build up this business, uh, a very shady business, the kind of business that you really have to be very careful to make sure you keep 
certain people in your good graces, like the doctor or the judge, who's totally oblivious to the entire scheme, but you have to make sure you keep feeding him the right information uh, to ensure that he keeps signing off on all of this stuff. And I think you kind of pointed at the right scene already where the whole thing kind of shifts, because when Dean Erickson walks into our office with literally a suitcase full of money, I think a smart businesswoman would have taken it at that point. Because if the guy walks in with, I think it was $300,000? Well, I mean, like $150,000. Yeah. She, she's smart enough to sniff mm-hmm. out, like, hey, if you're starting out at one hundred fifty, I bet you have more. And he's like, fine, three hundred. And then she And then she just like, nope, $10 million. And if you're not going to agree to $10 million, yeah. then we're done here. It's like, okay, fine. And then he threatens her. And I get it. Like, she might just think this guy's like bluffing. But it becomes very apparent that he's not soon after. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, at that point already, I figured, okay, if the guy is willing to pay that much money to get an old lady out of a nursing home, clearly there's something going on in the background that she might want to think about. And then, of course, it eventually just gets to a point where it's totally insane that she keeps doing it for what personal pride, greed, because she's petty. It just doesn't line up with this, I mean, savvy businesswoman that we're being presented with. And I almost hate to refer to her that way because her scheme is so ridiculously uh, just callous. But at the same time, uh, a character like that would know when she's reached her limits and when she when her bluff has been called. And she had those diamonds um, too. Like she had an out yeah. and she just didn't take it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the the other comparison that I made in my review, which ironically also about diamonds <laughs> is uncut gems because mm. Howard was a guy whose entire existence was so overridden by his deep seated addiction that all common sense eventually just went out the window. But Marla Grayson isn't a gambler like that. Like, her entire success is rooted in a very smart, very savvy approach to handling herself in her line of work. So it doesn't make sense for her to just, like, keep piling up risk upon risk uh, until the whole house of cards comes crumbling down eventually. It just, it didn't make sense for her to put herself in that position. Yeah, she just had a well-oiled machine was what we were, and I enjoyed seeing, even if I was kind of repulsed by it, (laughs) I enjoyed seeing how that business worked. And I was like, all right, you just don't need to be doing this. I think the other reference point I had while watching the movie, which is an obvious one, was Gone Girl, uh, because we've seen her do this kind of character before. And like like a you know a fairly cold, calculating person that might put on a different kind of veneer depending on who she's in front of is the character that Amy Dunn is in Gone Girl, and it also kind of goes to you thinking back to Nightcrawler and that it's like you know there's not really anyone that like you really really want to root for in Nightcrawler because or, sorry in Gone Girl because I mean obviously you know Amy does some pretty horrible stuff her own but like it becomes pretty apparent pretty soon too that like she was driven to it because Nick was like a terrible husband so yeah. you know you're not uh, you're not you, you don't really love either of those people but that's still like a really fun movie to watch because she has a really meticulous plan in that movie and you if i had to look it up before we started because i was like wait what ultimately is her undoing in that because i haven't watched gone girl in a couple years she's pretty thorough and meticulous when she kills the neil patrick characters harris character and what really almost does her in mostly i mean or I think what, or no, I think she goes there second. Uh, like the first thing that kind of drives her to him though, is like, she gets money stolen off of her by those people she's hanging out with at a hotel, which I mean, I, yeah, maybe she shouldn't have like introduced herself to anyone else, but like, it wasn't a dumb thing that she did necessarily that caused her to have to do that. Um, and it was like, I don't know, that character doesn't do anything that dumb. She's pretty conniving till the very end. And, you know, at least the other, in the Ben Affleck's Nick, like, 
he figures it out. So it's like, okay, these people are kind of smart, and you're watching them go back and forth. And uh, I don't know. It, it and wasn't. they deserve each other to an extent. That's a big portion of it, too. I mean, even though Nick is not a psychopath, of course, like you reach a point by the end where you're like, okay, like this whole thing shifted back and forth very nicely. But here, of course, she's a predator, and she's preying on older people who can't really help themselves. So yeah, yeah, you don't get that satisfaction at the end when you realize that it all kind of worked out. Yeah, and we're not going to do a spoiler section for this. It was number one on Netflix. It's easily accessible, uh, so I, 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 people can just go watch it if they really want to. Uh, we don't necessarily recommend it. I think you can already tell if you want to go back here, but I'm, I'm going to talk about the end now. And when they ultimately kind of go into business together at the end, I, I don't. I didn't really have the same reaction to it. I was like, oh, I mean, like, I guess it's interesting. It just didn't end with one killing the other. But, you know, I don't think you have that same satisfaction uh, like you did in Gone Girl. But you already mentioned earlier how I wanted to ask you about where the movie wants your sympathies to lie up until that point. And, you know, that was one thing. I never even got, like, a real feeling that the movie was making me, like, pushing me to root for her. Uh, you know, there's a moment where... And I don't know. I, I just I rewatched a couple parts of it this afternoon, and I think it was after the Christmas Cena scene. And he and they were just like, "Oh, maybe we need to back off here and just take the money." And she's like, well, "I can't do that. Every time a man like tries to threaten me in my life and my business, I've like you know I've just pushed past it. and I've been successful." I'm like, "Are they trying to like make us like like her because she's stood up to misogyny before?" And because like if that's what they're trying to do there. It didn't even really hit me the first time, so they didn't really accomplish their goal in that regard. And after that, I was just like, who am I supposed to ever be cheering for? I guess we're cheering for the mob boss, but, like, that's not that fun. And as I said, like, even if you're not supposed to cheer for either, like, you want to, like, at least have more fun watching these, like, these folks, like, outdo each other. And I'm just not. So I guess my question was, did, what were the moments where you really got an impression that they were, like, expecting you to cheer for Marla? And were you ever actually inclined to? Because I just never was. Yeah, I wasn't either. And I mean, that scene that you mentioned right there, um, it also happens at the very beginning where we see her um, kind of where we see her on court. Uh, I forgot the name of the lady, but her son is there and she successfully uh, prevents him from visiting her uh, because like she has his mother completely under her control. Oh, 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 the, oh the very first scene you mean with. Yes, yeah, the it, very it, first scene. Yeah, it's uh, it's like Mrs. Uh, Feldstrom. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. And then her son. uh comes up to her and yells at her and threatens her. And that's the first time where you kind of get the vibe where they're really trying to go for an angle where uh, she has to be tough because she's a woman and otherwise she won't be taken seriously uh, as a professional. And, okay, I'm just going to preface this by saying it very explicitly. I'm a guy, obviously, and I hate to mansplain this, but I think it's a genuinely offensive way to portray a businesswoman in a movie like this because the whole idea that you have to be that ruthless in order to get ahead, I don't really think that you're really. I don't think you're doing yourself a favor by like framing it that yeah, way. Yeah, I, I don't like what it implies. Like, women should be able to yeah, be, be they should be able to be themselves and I mean, be successful. Yeah. I and mean, maybe like there are certain you know, uh, you know patriarchal barriers and play and trying to stop that from happening but that doesn't mean the movie's right if that's the what it's positing yeah especially because of course it is it is a correct point to make um you you do have this kind of stuff all the time where some asshole will get into a woman's face and threaten her because he feels entitled to talk down to her but of course again she is so morally compromised that she's not really a good representative of that kind of mindset 
and I mean that and that doesn't even begin to cover her whole relationship with her um, colleague slash assistant, who seems to have a slightly more developed self-preservation instinct than Marla does, because she does want to exit this whole thing from time to time and say enough is enough. We should probably take the money and call it quits. Um, I mean that that's kind of a toxic relationship too, and I mean I appreciate that they really didn't like hammer home the point that this was. A lesbian couple because you don't see them that often and it's good that they just kind of included that uh but again not a very flattering component here and it just really frustrates me because you really had a chance here to tell a much more interesting story and you keep botching a lot of those aspects that really don't get included in movies often enough yeah i mean i saw some people that seem to think that the movie the movie was like almost like using the same sex relationship as like another way to try and you know make you like her when like you said it's kind of toxic the way she manipulates fran mm-hmm. uh and multiple times during throughout the movie even after they've like you know both gotten beaten and kidnapped and all that uh and fran's been left for dead she still kind of like frames their choices as like one where like you know if like if, if we run now or ever we're gonna have to run forever so you need to like we, we need to we need to stay we need to stay in this thing even it's like you know you really yep. should not stay in it um but i know i and i we didn't even mention her much but i i, re- I really like isa gonzalez's performance and like you know she did a better american accent than rosamund pike did in this movie i, I don't I, <laughs> um and even though like rosamund pike's been at this a lot longer i did not understand like i don't there was weird stuff going on with rosamund pike's voice the first half of the movie even if like there's mm. some level that's fun of that's fun it's fun to watch her on some level even in a movie this bad do her thing but it was like distracting for me uh and so like i i don't know I, I, yeah i i it, it was interesting to have her have that other presence in her life but i don't know like there's like there's just a moment in the movie that we didn't really talk about much about uh diane weiss's performance yet but there's like a moment also uh, kind of like midway through the movie before I really thought it went off the rails where you actually learn that there is like more to the character than her just being this like old lady that like had her life upended and that she actually mm-hmm. uh, she seems to know more about like her son's dealings and uh, than we even knew and, and a great scene where like she's already gotten drugged up some at the nursing home and uh, and Marla tries to like extract information from her and she just like she's like a steel wall and isn't breaking even though she's under the influence of some kind of drugs. And and she talks some shit back to Marla. And I was like, Oh, this lady's actually pretty interesting now. And there's another scene where like they try and break her out. And then after that, you never see her the rest of the movie. Uh, and you know, like it's not even like an, that's not like uh, an exaggeration. Like that's literally, you don't see her the rest of the movie. And she disappears. And I was just like, that's kind of interesting. Like, uh, we, we learned a little bit about the backstory of what this family is like, but like, and we're led to believe that she probably knew about those diamonds and uh, knows a little bit more about their dealings because she, uh, just by the way she reacts to Marla, the way she reacts to the guys that try to break her out, I'm like, there's probably a lot more interesting stuff to this woman's whole entire life that I kind of want to know about. And it just has no interest in going back to her. And I just think that's a huge mistake. Diane Wiest is a. Uh, three-time Oscar-nominated act- actress, I think two-time Oscar-winning actress, maybe. Um, I think she's won Best Supporting Actress twice, or at least been nominated for three times, either won it once or twice. And it's interesting, because like, most of the stuff I'd seen her before, I've only seen one of the... I saw Hannah and her sisters, but I think she won Best Supporting Actress for. But she's normally like kind of a sweet presence, K- a kind person, even in some of her younger roles, not just as an old lady. She was in Steven Soderbergh's Let Them All Talk on HBO Max earlier this year. And 
I got really excited in that scene where she tells off Marla, and I was like, oh wow, this is kind of cool to get her to see to see her play someone, an actress of this caliber, that at this age, getting to like bite into a character that might have a sinister side, and after all, like we already both said we kind of like the idea of this being a movie about like the side of the healthcare industry we don't usually see, but it's a, but like she is the representation of like the victim in that side of the healthcare industry, like that this movie had, uh, even if like she might not be as innocent of a soul as we're led to believe at the beginning, the fact is like she did get taken advantage of and it would have been interesting to like have the movie stay in that corner more so than the one it goes to where it turns into like this gangster revenge plot type of thing. And I, that's just another part of this movie that like, it just seemed like it had no interest in, like you were saying, they just had, it just went away from more interesting things. And I think she was one where she was probably giving the movies, giving the movies most interesting performance. And it just like, it, it, it's literally not on our screen for like an hour after that. Yeah. It's very unfortunate because I was kind of hoping, um, that, she would have a bit more agency in this entire situation too, because it feels like most of the uh, stuff gets delegated to her son eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, because it really does pivot towards more of a gangster slash crime thriller, um, which is so unfortunate. Because again, I think the premise uh, about professional ethics and these major flaws in our healthcare uh, system, especially after last year, uh, where it was so mm-hmm. well covered in the news, yeah. I think you really had an interesting angle here. And the movie just wasn't interested in fully exploring that. It went down the rabbit hole uh, and just kept on chasing its least interesting plot points. Uh, and by the end, really, the entire reason for why this movie, I think, even existed just kind of disappeared. And I think that's unfortunate because, again, there is a very interesting story to tell here. And that's just not the one the movie was ultimately interested in. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I uh, even wanted to mention. Uh, I mean, I guess we didn't talk that much about Peter Dinklage. I mean, you know, I, I find it I, I find it interesting when people uh, find ways to use him because he's obviously uh-huh. uh, so well known for Game of Thrones. I appreciate when other people like f- find other things for him to do and have the boldness to cast him in something. One because I mean, obviously, uh, physically he's just a, a different type of person than you commonly see on your screens. But two, like you know, some might be afraid to like let him do other stuff when you become known for a show as big as game of thrones doing a very uh, iconic character so it's like i'm happy for him that he got to do something like that i mean let's say i don't want to make it seem like he didn't get to do anything he's already played the villain in an x-men movie i think uh uh-huh. but it was a very, i mean it was a very specific role and i feel like there's a there would have been a way for him to have a presence in this movie and i would have been happy with the performance if it just like if, if he was more of like you know kind of a force behind the scenes pulling strings for more of it uh, and using like Christmas Cena character as his puppet, and it, like I said, if it stayed within that part of the movie that was more within the legal, a little more within the legal system and the guardianship system, and he still could have been there and like you know been a little mysterious for more of the movie maybe, or just maybe more of a mystery to some of the other characters, and then like come in at the end or something. And I. I don't know if, if that makes sense to you, but I, I'm just trying to think of other ways where he still could have been in this, but like it still could have been a movie that like we're both saying we would have liked more, you know. Yeah, it's really unfortunate how quickly they discard the Dean Erickson character as well. Because I, I like Chris Messina a lot, not just in this movie. I thought he was really good in Sharp Objects mm-hmm. a few years ago. Um, just the kind of actor that whenever he's around, usually he delivers the goods. Um, and I think you're absolutely right that there was an aspect here, especially because uh, the legal side of it is obviously the more relevant to what would happen in real life. Like, how do you get yourself out of the situation? Like, what avenues can you pursue uh, when all of a sudden you're 
grandmother or your mother is no longer accessible to you because someone like Rosamund Pike's character came in and took charge of her. So it's really unfortunate then that there's re there's that scene where uh, Peter Dinklage just kind of yells at him uh, because he failed in court. Hmm. And then he also disappears from the proceedings. And that's really a shame that they wrapped up that entire angle so quickly because I really do think if they had just kept the whole thing a little bit more grounded uh, and tried to pursue avenues that you would see uh, in real life, then this would have had a lot more relevance to uh, what's actually going on as opposed to just going off on weird tangents that uh, derailed the entire movie eventually. Yeah, one other thing I'll say is I enjoyed Isaiah Whitlock as the judge. A lot of you might know him as Clay Davis from The Wire, but you know he's uh, popped up in a lot of other you know Spike Lee movies and stuff like that before. And I, it, it just made me even more annoyed that it didn't like spend more time being that kind of movie because I thought you know a lot of times judges can just be total caricatures in movies. And I thought I kind of enjoyed what he did in those in those limited moments. And it's just a I don't know. It, it's just always frustrating when I there's like I can watch a movie and then so clearly see a version of this movie I would like so much more. Like it doesn't always happen with movies I don't like, and it it just did with this one. I was like, oh man, like I just think they like they had an interesting nugget and they just went away from it. Any other any other final thoughts, Fred? Before we move on to Hillbilly Elegy, so it's, so it's so it's your worst. That, that's not an exaggeration. Probably your least favorite movie of 2020, or that counts for a 2020 movie for awards purposes. I would say so. I mean, I went down the list and I thought <laughs> about it. I mean, the only one that comes even remotely close, I guess, is The Prom. Uh, okay, I did not watch that. One, that. I... It, I will say that one at the very least had its heart in the right place. Hmm. Um, it, it, it does some things that are just way over the top and some of the messaging isn't ideal either. But when you watch it, you at least get the sense that they tried to do right and just kind of botched it. But this one was just so mean-spirited, so cynical and just derailed so quickly um that i just couldn't wait to be done with it and rant about it on letterboxd yeah it's like exactly what i did yeah it's so. like, i don't even know how much credit to give it for having like a good you know first half when i think they really screwed up its second half like so badly it's like should i even give it credit when it like it didn't even realize it what it was doing was good it seems it's like i, I don't yeah, even know I... and something i think we haven't really mentioned yet and i really do want to point this out it's getting good reviews like, people seem to like this. Like, this is sitting at, what, like an 81, 82% on Rotten Tomatoes? Oh, I had missed that. That's uh, that's disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is actually, like, getting pretty good uh, pretty good feedback critically. I haven't really seen a ton of audience reactions to it, and I don't know if it's going to be represented at the Oscars at all. I sincerely hope not. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, but it's very unfortunate that uh, people seem to care for this uh, as much as they did because I really didn't get anything out of it. At all. My last ranked movie, uh, I haven't updated my letterbox to reflect stuff I've watched, my letterbox listing or rankings for 2020 for stuff I've watched in the last couple of weeks, but I, I had Scoob as the last one because I was very excited about Scoob. <laughs> yeah, uh, I didn't watch that one. Because it, uh, it, it was originally written by uh, Kelly Freeman Craig, who did Edge of 17, a movie I love, and then I found out like 20 minutes into starting it that like it got rewritten by like five dudes that I, none of whom I'd ever heard of. And it was just not, it was just not good and didn't give you what you want out of a Scooby-Doo movie. If you grew up enjoying Scooby-Doo, uh, but like, I, who Which knows? Yeah. So I, you don't need to watch it. I, like that and the hunt were my bottom two. Uh, and the hunt's kind of the same oh, thing. I was, yeah, it was, that was the last thing I saw in theaters before, uh, COVID. Uh, yeah, that was a while back. Yeah. But I, but like, I, I don't know. That was another one where it just like, I, it was probably a kernel of a good movie there and it just didn't happen but like I just had such a bad reaction to that that I put it at the bottom mm -hmm. and I mean I don't know I, I'll have to think about it but like it, it's just like I, I was enjoying my experience for like 
a lot for like a decent portion of the runtime more than I realized when I went back and watched part of I care a lot today. Like I, I think I got to the 40, 45 minute mark before it just really goes off the rails. So it's like, I don't know. Do you give it credit for that? Or do you just like still kill it anyway? Cause it just like, it so clearly went off, went off on a wrong track where it could have stayed on a good one, but Oh, well, uh, whatever. A lot of people are going to watch it. So it's not like I can, nothing, nothing we can do about it. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it doesn't get an Oscar nomination. Like we can say, like we said, so, uh, We'll move on to Hillbillyology now. Uh, another movie that uh, hopefully doesn't get too much Oscar love. Uh, it's 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 a, it, it's a little bit of an older Netflix release, but uh, I I felt the need to visit it, revisit it myself just recently, and I think Fred didn't watch it right when it came out too, but he watched it uh, a little before I did. But uh, there's a good chance that Glenn Close is going to get an Oscar nomination for this movie. Uh, so I thought, you know what, I, I like normally seeing all the Oscar-nominated performances. And the, as of the time Fred and I are recording this, the Golden Globes are coming out tonight. They will have already aired by the time anyone listens to this. But it was just like, you know, I should probably at least like, you know, if I want to send an angry tweet about it winning something, I want to be able to do it with some level of authority. <laughs> uh, so I so I, I, had to go, I had to go ahead and watch it. But uh, Hillbilly Elegy, again, it's from, it's from Ron Howard, written by Vanessa Taylor, who wrote the shape of water it, it is adapted from the book hillbilly elegy by jd vance it's an autobiographical story of his uh from when he was growing up in uh in rural ohio a town called middleton uh but like his family was originally originally from like uh the mountains of kentucky jackson kentucky and uh his grandma whose uh name is uh bonnie but goes by uh mama uh when she was of a certain younger age, when she had had kids, a life brought her and her husband from Kentucky to Ohio. So uh, they've always been a little separated from the West rest of their uh, quote unquote hillbilly family in Kentucky. And he talks a lot about how he still identifies with that part of the world. Uh, he grows up in a very difficult circumstances because his mom, uh, played named Beverly, played by Amy Adams, is a nurse who uh, struggles with drug addiction, and uh, their family never has a ton of money. He has a, a sister uh, named Lindsay, played by Haley Bennett, who an older sister who uh, is also a presence in his life and ends up having a family uh, of her own. And he's able to, like, escape that even after having to go live with his uh, mamaw for part of his childhood uh, because he, you know, gets good enough grades to go to college at Ohio State, uh, joins the military, then goes to law school at Yale, where he is in the present timeline. The movie jumps back and forth between uh, 2011 uh, when he's trying to work his way into getting a summer internship at, in D.C., uh, where his girlfriend, uh, Usha, played by Frida Pinto, who, I mean— Look, we go back to like Slumdog Millionaire with her, so it was very kind of distracting to like have her playing like a law student. Like she's just older than that. It was kind of weird, but whatever. Uh, he he's trying to deal with, uh, d- trying to like move on with his life, go get a summer uh, associate position in Washington with his girlfriend, and uh, he gets a call from Lindsay that their mom is OD'd and he needs to go back home and like try and like help her. And it's the night before, basically it's like thirty six hours before he has a massive uh, job interview and he's drawn back home and we again the movie just jumps timelines back and forth so you can see what his life was like growing up and uh and then what it's like as he's trying to deal with his family when he is on the cusp of like starting his own like you know happy life uh fred i guess this is kind of similar for me to i care a lot in that i i think i saw a version like i i didn't come into this with like I came into this with extremely low expectations, just based on what I already heard about it. There's a reason I waited so long to watch it. Uh, whereas, like, I came in with no expectations. I really didn't know anything about I Care A Lot when I started it. Uh, here, I came in with, like, super low expectations. But as I was watching it, I actually kind of clearly saw, like, a version of this movie that, like, hey, there might be something interesting here. Uh, 
I don't, I, I'm not going to draw a direct parallel to like, uh, my family, but like, I can like, uh, I, cause like my family's just not like this family, but I can relate to like, not exactly wanting to go home, uh, as someone mm-hmm. that like, I'm from, I'm from a different part. I'm from a much different part of Florida than the one I live in now. And I, uh, my, my family wishes I was back there and I don't really have any interest in doing that in this part of my mm-hmm. life. And I think there's this an interesting thing to think about that when like you want to very clearly live in a different part of the country where the rest of your family is, but like, nevertheless, like you might be drawn back there for one reason or another. And so there's like at least the bare bones of a story I can like really relate to. But the fact is, uh, Ron Howard is a guy who, uh, he's literally been in Hollywood almost his entire life. Uh, he was on, like, I mean, he's born in Oklahoma actually, which I didn't realize, but like he, like his family moved to his, but his, his family did move to, uh, California when he was younger and he was on the Andy Griffin show when he was five years old and was famous ever since then. And so he's not someone that really, I would say, uh, has his finger on the pulse of rural America. So I think if you're going to make a movie about this part of the country, you need to like have filmmakers that like actually can, you know, know what they're talking about with respect to these parts of the country. And, uh, this one, uh, I would say, uh, just didn't really necessarily like, that's where it kind of misses the mark for me, even though it's adapting it firsthand from someone. I don't know. It just felt like it, I don't know. It feels like it missed the marks in a lot of ways that we'll talk about, but what was your like initial reaction to Hillbilly Elegy? Because I'm sure you kind of had some of the same preconceived notions going in as I did. Yeah, I just want to start out with a few caveats, I guess, because I think I might find myself in the awkward position over the next few minutes where I might have to defend the movie a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not great. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's 20% on Rotten Tomatoes bad. Oh, okay. Um, so the first thing I will say is uh, it's entirely fair to say that Ron Howard was not the best candidate to direct this movie. There are several names that we can talk about later who might have been better suited for that. That said, I think the guy gets a lot of undue hatred. Uh, I get the sense that a lot of times, uh, whenever a new movie that he's directed comes out, people already uh, try to tear it down before they've even seen it. And, you know, I mean, the guy has a lot of decent and good stuff on his resume. I thought Solo Star Wars story was a lot of fun. Uh, mm-hmm. Frost Nixon is a legitimately great movie. Yes. Um, and about as entertaining as you can make uh, a television interview, I suppose. So kudos for that. Uh, and if you've ever seen him like on talk shows, like he's a legitimately fun guy. So I don't know why people always try so hard to tear him down. Um, the second thing I will say is, I think a lot of people went into this movie with a certain amount of prejudice uh, because it's about a community that they blame for giving us Trump. Which is a fair point, but at the same time, I would say a lot of people already started watching it thinking, yeah, we're not even going to give it a chance. So I think that's part of the reason why a lot of people just flat out hated it. Um, and the third thing I will say is, and I said this in my letterbox review as well, I was never bored. I mm-hmm. thought in a lot of ways it had entertainment value, sometimes not in the best way imaginable, and it has the subtlety of uh, smashing a windshield with a baseball bat sometimes. <laughs> but I do think that there is an interesting component here about a community of people that is stereotyped a lot. Uh, and I think it would benefit us to maybe shine a light on them to understand a little better what went wrong there and what happened there and why they've kind of become isolated from where the country has moved over the past few decades. Um, and I think there are good stories out there about that. Uh, Logan sort of bullied me recently into reading Tara Westover's Educated, which is a really interesting story about uh, 
a girl who grew up in a survivalist uh, family hmm. uh, where the dad basically talked about the end of days all the time and that they needed to be uh, trained in like basic survival skills. So when the apocalypse comes, they can be ready for it. And I thought that was a very interesting insight into a family where she was never given any perspective into uh, like becoming educated. She never went to public school. Like she spent her entire life uh, doing like manual labor essentially until she was 15 and her brother convinced her to study for the SATs. So there are interesting stories out there about this sort of stuff. But I just don't think that this, I mean, I've never read Hillbilly Elegy, so maybe that's unfair. But the way the movie was made, uh, it's a very strange, very unflattering portrayal uh, of these people, and I genuinely don't understand who the movie was made for. Well, that's the thing. Because... I mean, people were, were, like you said, like I think people were worried it was going to be about like trying to like make Trump supporters sympathetic, but it, the movie's like almost aggressively apolitical. It doesn't really, it doesn't talk about politics at all. I mean, like, I mean, obviously, there's you can you can like make your own inferences and all that, but it's just if that was like its intent. Uh, you know, and you said like you said something about stereotyping, and it's like it does stereotype yeah. those stereotypes. Like if it's trying to put a microscope under these people that are unfairly stereotyped, it just stereotypes them anyway. Uh, and, and yes. so it's like I I don't really know what he was trying to accomplish in that regard. Um, if like you know, and here's the thing, I I I didn't know anything about JD Vance, and I told you this earlier. I went on his Twitter feed, mm-hmm. and I mean he is basically like. He's not even like, you know, as I'm watching this, my, my thinking is like just knowing like, you know, what what little I could personally relate to this story from. And like, again, my family is not like 100% Trump voters or anything like that. But it's like I'd say my politics are much different from like the, the, the median voter in the panhandle of Florida. And I, as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, oh, like is this about like a guy that like, you know, is this kind of like the sharp objects thing uh, where it's like – it's funny. This came up with Chris Messina, but there's obviously a connection here with Amy, Amy Adams, Adams. Uh, where it's like she clearly like I think is – we're led to believe from what I remember watching that. It's like she has very different politics than the people of like that home that she goes back to oh, probably. Yeah. And it's like – and it's it's kind of the same here where it's like, oh, am I supposed to think that this guy's like, you know, like seeing the light politically or something and is has different values maybe? Is that part of what like, you know – is keeping him away from going back home is does he have very different values from these people here and then i go i just happen to like come across his twitter feed afterward and it's like he <laughs> like i did i did i didn't know about him at all personally and like where he stood on things in general i i watched this whole movie thinking maybe that he's just like kind of different but this guy's not even like and not that i have any love for the guy but he's not a mitt romney republican he's like retweeting oh. videos that are saying that like the impeachment hearing brought us just as close to the brink of insurrection as the insurrection of january 6th itself so now that I know like where this guy's like values stand, I'm like, I, I, it's, I, 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 maybe it's a little unfair to Ron Howard to like judge any of the intentions of this movie based off of JD Vance's Twitter feed. But the fact is, he chose to adapt this guy's book, and this guy maybe has some kind of agenda behind his book. And I read one one review that said that uh, he is, you know. He's like interrogating all these problems that this community has and trying to shine a light on them. But apparently, the book, you know shies away from like even raising the suggestion that a like, that a solution to these issues is government in, uh, support uh you know where uh you know it's like if you want to have like his politics are obviously such that he's not coming at it from the side that's going to like actually be in favor of a government oriented solution to any kind of such poverty ailments and so it's like you know it's great you want to like you know show how look these people deserve sympathy too they've been left behind uh it's really unfair that you can't go to rehab if you don't have like insurance and all that but like yo if i now know about you 
that like you are your politics are such that you're not going to be in favor of our country like passing laws to like help these people out like i don't really know what i'm supposed to make of you or what this movie's trying to say you know yeah, let's just put that aside for a second, because I think it's very valid to question his motivations, especially mm-hmm. since he was the one who wrote the book and he's such a, a pivotal character within that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even that aside, I think when you look at the movie and especially Amy Adams's character, um, I just didn't get the sense at any point that this was a character we can feel much sympathy for, because to an extent, sure, anybody who goes down the rabbit hole of addiction. Uh, Like, it's terrible when you get to that point, especially when you're a young mother, you might have had ambitions in life, uh, and you didn't get to um, live out those ambitions because all of a sudden you found yourself raising a family by yourself. Um, But we're also led to believe that, like, she had a job as a nurse. I think, like, Mm -hmm. she had a a working nurse uh, even before the, like, even while she had a family. Like, I think, like, I think we're led to believe that, like, the dad's death, like, kind of drove her to like was seems like kind of what drove her to addiction i think is kind of where the the timeline kind of leads us to so like i mean it's not even like the kid having the family necessarily stopped her from like uh pursuing her career she just wasn't going to go places to the extent that jd did and she clearly resents him for that and that goes to what you're saying about like i don't think they like make the family all that redeemable on their own no especially again amy adams's character because Every time you, she basically gets an opportunity to redeem herself or a chance to work on herself, um, she takes two steps backwards. I mean, she's like aggressive and violent towards her children. There's that scene where uh, JD has to like run into this like random woman's house because uh, his mom is going crazy on him. And I mean, it's incredible. I mean, he's a former Marine. Uh, now he's a law student at Yale. Uh, it doesn't seem doesn't sense. doesn't seem proud of him really. Yeah, really doesn't. Not at all. I mean, she seems almost kind of embarrassed that he was able to make something of himself while she wasn't. And the interesting thing is, JD at one point like vigorously defends her when he's at dinner with all those lawyers, and they kind of say, "Oh, like hillbilly redneck," and he like genuinely like explodes and almost kind of embarrasses himself because he's saying that she did very well in high school, like. She was second in her class. Like she's probably smarter than every single person at this table. And then we don't get a single scene in the entire movie that actually supports that assessment. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that really kind of frustrated me because Amy Adams. I mean, she's getting some awards. Love didn't get a Golden Globe nomination, but she's got a SAG. SAG, yeah. Got a SAG nomination, yeah. Um, but it really just kind of frustrated me because I thought that this is exactly the kind of performance that's so Oscar baity because. Clearly, there are a lot of scenes that are going to play very well in that monta- that montage at the awards show. Um, but as a character, especially as kind of that representation of the idea that even though he's successful now, he's at Yale, like he's still drawn back to his family because family is important. She's an awful representation of that idea. And that's why I don't know what the movie is ultimately trying to tell me in terms of staying true to your roots even though you might have moved on with your life yeah the scene where he it's really uncomfortable like watching him max out his credit cards to get her into rehab and then she just like runs out the door right after he does that at that point i'm just like i don't think it would have been it would have made me like respect the film's priorities a little more if at some point it had made him clear that he would not have been in the wrong if he had just like not gone back uh, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if that's really how they, his family feels about him and, uh, always accomplished in life, then 
I, I don't I don't think he should like feel obligated to do stuff at that point. It's not you know it'd be one thing if I did that. I'm a I'm, my family gave me everything I have. I, I mean I, I I clearly don't think I I would like JD Vance as a person, but I guess I need to at least respect the fact that like he got to that point in his life without any real support yeah. from his family. Whereas like I'm the privileged kid that got through law school without any debt because of my family like i mean so if 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 something bad happens with them like yeah i should i I feel like i would need to go help my parents out but like uh he has a mom that's like actively hostile towards him and doesn't really seem to show any sort of pride in him or uh appreciation for the other times he's presumably tried to help her in the past so like he shouldn't need to sacrifice his future to go try and find her a rehab center uh it's noble of him to do it but the movie seems to like i don't know it seems to want to like come down on the side of like yeah, you should like always like look out for your family. Where it's like, ah, eh, I mean, maybe to a point is 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 my is my response to the movie, I guess. Yeah, and then there's that other scene that I uh, really keep coming back to when uh, she has to get Amy Adams has to get drug tested, and she asks JD to pee in the cup for her because her urine sample isn't going to come back clean. Uh, which was really an interesting encapsulation of the entire conflict there, because that's the one point JD really just explodes on his mother. Uh, that she's being a shitty mom, that she's not being responsible, that she keeps like doing this kind of stuff. Well, even well, she's... well he explodes on his grandma, too, for that same True. sequence, because he's saying she's enabled yeah. her throughout her life. Yeah, yeah, which clear, clearly she has. I mean, up until that point, you never get the sense that anybody uh, held Bev accountable for her actions, uh, including her own mother. And there are, there are some interesting components there about how... Uh, Bev's upbringing might have not been ideal either, to say the least, that that was a very abusive uh, marriage as well, where she at one point literally set her husband on fire, Mm. which, I mean, Jesus Christ. I I was a little Uh, unclear on that. Uh, I don't know if the movie did a great job of explaining it or didn't do a good job of explaining it or I missed something. Were you supposed to believe, though, that that was in response to him abusing uh, abusing Bonnie, abusing, uh, or or that she just, like, straight up, like, went off on him? Like, I mean, not that it's, like you really ever want to set someone on fire, but I couldn't tell if it was like she was a victim of his abuse. So then she set him on fire or if she just straight up set him on fire and she's now mellowed out in her old age. I didn't know which it was. Uh, like clearly there were a lot of issues on both sides in that marriage, okay. but, okay. I, but, but, but it's been a few weeks since I've watched it, but the, yeah. the clear implication was that Beth is also a very messed up product of that particular upbringing. Right. And that's the one scene like, with the urine sample where you really get the sense that maybe the grandmother is finally coming to a sort of epiphany that she needs to do something because she's about to fail another generation of her family. Hmm. And that I think, you know, kind of allows Glenn Close to really get to a point where unlike Amy Adams's character, there is a small amount of sympathy that I started to feel for that character because now in her old age, she's really trying to at least redeem herself to a certain extent. And I don't know if she necessarily deserves it as a character in the movie we've seen up to that point, but it allows Glenn Close to at the very least play a character with different like shades of gray to her. Well, and yeah. I think ultimately, when I think about it, maybe it's not a career best performance, sure. But if she's getting awards nominations, I mean, she is the performer in that movie who should be getting those. Well, that's that was going to be that was going to be the yeah, yeah, that was going to be the next question I was going to ask you because that was the one big thing we hadn't really touched on and it was that that it was the only reason I watched this movie in the first place. Like I don't I don't think Amy Adams like it's funny. I mean like I am sure like the regardless these two actresses would probably have agreed to be in this and uh anyway, but it it just so happens they brought together the like the two most frequently Oscar Oscar nominated actresses that have never won an Oscar before yep. uh to both star together in this movie and uh 
and I, 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 like you said, Amy Adams got SAG. I don't think she's going to get an Oscar nomination. Glenn Close is probably going to get an Oscar nomination, which is the only thing that made me watch this movie. And I was kind of skeptical because, like, the, I don't know if you've seen the poster to this movie. It just looks ridiculous. I mean, uh, I, like, it almost looked like a joke. There's just so many prosthetics she's wearing. There've been so oh, many right. weird. There've been so many weird stills like put around on Twitter, and I was just like, oh my god! Like, I, and but like I had seen respect people who I respect who had watched it say. Like, yeah, like she is the best part of the movie, though. So I, I, I came, I came into it with very weird expectations, where it's like people are saying this, but she does look kind of ridiculous. And then I kind of came out of it thinking, like, oh no, those people are right. Like, I mean, even if she looks yeah. ridiculous, like it is a good performance. So I was wondering, like, how much? Because you said like you weren't bored. It probably did some. You probably like were a little more positive on it on the whole than I did. How big of a part of that was her performance for you? Like, did it elevate the movie, or did it at least like allow her to come out of this? whole thing unscathed like what was your ultimate reaction to actually like seeing her in this in this role which is in a movie that has largely been derided but it's gonna get her her like eighth oscar nomination yeah she brought a much needed humanity to a lot of those scenes uh during his childhood because again the amy adams character like you just reach a point where you kind of give up on her um where she's had a lot of chances and she's clearly not going to take them so you get so frustrated that your sympathy kind of goes away. But Glenn Close's character, and I mean, that's the advantage of having an actress of her caliber in that role. And I don't know if you've seen pictures of the actual grandmother. I mean, they really do look alike with yeah. all of that makeup and the glasses. Yeah, if, the if, yeah glasses who knows? was actually the one from the grandmother. Oh, if it was an unknown, if, yeah, if it was an, if it was an unknown actress, like maybe I wouldn't have that reaction to like the movie poster, but it's like, that's Glenn Close. And you're like, wow, like they're really going all out with whatever they're doing. Yeah, and maybe some of those tough love scenes are a little bit over the top uh, when she tries to steer her grandson back into the right direction after he kind of gets on the wrong path. And uh, there's that scene in the warehouse where they trash it and you get the sense that he's clearly uh, like he's clearly very far away from the Yale law student he's going to become one day. And, you know, of course, the way she talks to him, those scenes are also going to play very well in the montages for the awards shows. Uh, but you know, like she makes them work and I felt like, you know what, like if you have a character like that, who maybe hasn't always, uh, done right by her family and now she's sort of taking the last chance to maybe set him straight. Um, yeah, you know, that was probably the best way to play those scenes in a lot of ways. And is it one of the all time great performances that she's giving here? No. Uh, but if she finally wins her Oscar, which is long overdue, you know, who am I to complain about it? So Yeah, I, I guess I was just really worried it was going to be a caricature when I saw that stuff. And it was certainly like, you know, it, it was just like way more of a, a real character than I was expecting. And I was, uh, you know, I was legitimately impressed. And, it, and she, you know, brought a lot of humanity to it. Whereas I was just like, I don't know, I guess I just... I felt like a lot of the rest of them like came across as kind of caricatures, and um, I mean, not they. I mean, I actually think Haley Bennett's pretty good, but like, or maybe it is more just the Amy Adams character. I don't know, but like, it just I didn't like how the Haley Bennett character still rubbed me the wrong way a couple of times, and she was just, you know, she. I think it's a good performance, and it's like an example of a younger person that kind of gets stuck there, as opposed to what, uh, as opposed to JD going off to do his own thing. But there's a little bit of that in her too, where it's like she might seem a little resentful of him uh, going off and doing the big city things, whereas like she, like her mom, had a family and like had to just had to stick around. And it's like, you know, I, I just 
I don't know. It's just very weird that like this guy like accomplished all these great things and they just weren't there for him. Whereas like at least seemed like the grandma really appreciated it. It was pretty moving when she hugged that math test. Uh, and I, and, and it was like, okay, well at least like there's one character here who like, I don't know, makes sense and is uh, well acted. And I just wish the rest of the movie had like been on that level with like portraying these people with like the proper level of nuance. And I, maybe it's unfair of me to put all of that on Ron Howard. Cause, uh, but I don't know. Like I, I, I mentioned to you before, I thought like Jeff Nichols could have done it, but I also thought about it as I were watching and like a movie that I thought like handled this kind of, um, handle like p- people from a similar part of the country well was the last one we talked about on a podcast where it was just the two of us the devil all the time uh which mm-hmm. i mean wasn't a perfect movie but like I, I i feel like i got a better sense of a town uh in that movie and uh, uh, the kind of people that would have lived in a town like that i thought that movie had a better understanding of it and that wasn't like a southern filmmaker like jeff nichols antonio campos yeah. is apparently from new york i looked that up and i don't know i just I, I i've seen other versions of like this part of america that were just more convincing that portrayed these kind of people with like a softer touch and yeah another oh sorry no that that was all i was gonna say but that's clearly like we had already mentioned that's clearly what this movie is trying to do like that's clearly what jd vance wanted to accomplish by telling his family story and it's i don't think the movie does him any favors yeah i was gonna say another director slash writer who came to mind who has been very good in the past about uh not necessarily tackling similar parts of the country but sort of rural america where people kind of felt left behind uh is taylor sheridan Oh, yeah, for I mean, sure. Yeah, I mean... Hello uh, High Water was yeah. very effective about, like, a dilapidated sort of, like, uh, town in Texas where people just got so desperate where they eventually started to rob banks. Right. Um, I also really thought Wind River got dealt a bad hand because uh, it was released right around the time it's when... Like the last Harvey the Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein yeah. was broke. Yep, exactly, which it's really unfair that it got associated with that because I thought it was really a genuinely moving film. Uh about a part of the country that really doesn't get a lot of attention. Uh, so he's he's the kind of guy who has the sort of emotional connection to these characters and this part of the country, um, who you can see tackling this with maybe a little bit more subtlety, uh, where you have a movie that... I mean, I maintain what I said at the beginning. I mean, there are some people who are never really going to be on board for this material because uh, they don't have any interest in seeing those communities because... Uh, they associate a lot of the toxic politicization in this country uh, with these people. But I think there is definitely a better version made by a more fitting director slash maybe even writer who can get more out of this material than they they ended up getting. Yeah, Taylor Sheridan's a great call. Hell or High Water, I mean... That, that that he really brings that like that small rural Texas town to life in a in a pretty convincing way. I, I like that. I like that call, but. Yeah, I don't know, uh, Fred. We got we got about eight minutes here before we uh, finish up. Do you have any mm-hmm. final thoughts on Hillbilly Elegy? I will maintain what I said that it's nowhere near the worst movie I've seen last year. I thought it had it it, it kept me uh, interested enough that at the end of the day, um, I'm even kind of glad I watched it. Um, I'm glad that the Globes forced me into that position <laughs> because I, I I think again like maybe down the road we're going to get a more interesting version based on different material that tells a similar story. Uh, this wasn't it, unfortunately. Um, but again, if you feel like a completist, uh, if Glenn Close gets an Oscar nomination, don't be scared to watch it. It's not going to be the worst thing you'll watch uh, from last year. Yeah, the, the, the last thing I'll say is that uh, I, I feel bad I didn't even at least give him his, his name a shout out. The uh, JD character is played by uh, Gabrielle Basso. 
who is an actor. And I mean, I don't know if there's a ton to that performance, really. I mean, he's fine. Uh, but I just want to like, we shout him out too. He's been in a lot of other good stuff. You know, he was in, he was in super eight, the JJ Abrams movie. He wasn't the, like the, the lead guy in it, but he was like one of the friends who like, I think was like the videographer. Uh, he was in Kings of summer, like a really good indie movie from, uh, 2013 by Jordan Vogue Roberts that he's like one of the three main guys in there with Nick Robinson and, uh, Moises Arias. And then he was in like a, like a straight to video movie that has my girl, Haley Steinfeld called barely lethal, which is like very underrated, but he's like an, has like an incredibly hilarious supporting uh, performance in there and gets off like an incredibly fun line that involves Vera Farmiga. And I'll leave it at that and let anyone go watch it that wants to see it. But he's like a talented actor. And I, I, it's a shame because if this movie had been better, I think it could have like, you know, catapulted into bigger, bigger and better things. I mean, he's still like, he's still a young guy. Like I'm sure he'll get other opportunities, but it just, this could have been more of a star making turn. I think if it was just a better movie overall, but I mean, again, I'm kind of like you and that I'm like, I'm glad I, I could see it at least so I could weigh in on this stuff. It just, it, it took this Glenn Close Oscar campaign, like getting close to happening to like get me there. But I mean, look, if you want to like get mad at things, like I think you like, I think it's more important people do their homework before they get mad about them. So they can like at least come at it from like a place of like knowledge and saying they put in the work to be able to have an opinion on something. So like you, like Fred, I'm also glad I at least gave it a shot, even if I wasn't too happy with how I ended up feeling about it. Fred, anything else you want to recommend to the listeners before we sign off to go watch the Golden Globes? Anything else you've been actually enjoying recently since we just talked about two things you didn't enjoy so much? <laughs> yeah, I did get a chance to watch a couple of other Golden Globe-nominated movies over the past few weeks, mm-hmm. and uh, those are actual movies I'll uh, maybe touch on when we do our Top 10 podcast. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, Riz Ahmed and Paul Ratchie's performances in Sound of Metal, mm-hmm. available on Amazon Prime. Really terrific stuff. Uh, really interesting take on uh, a community that doesn't get enough coverage in movies. And uh, I was very uh, pleasantly surprised by uh, how well it tied together uh, people with hearing disabilities uh, and music, which was a very touching movie. And then, of course, there is a Promising Young Woman, which I know you've touched on, I think, in the last podcast we did together. I don't think it's available for rent yet or i guess you can rent it but it's still 20 bucks yeah it's it's not like cheap but it's good so if you have if you have if you if you can afford to do that then i agree i recommend doing it and we'll have a podcast out on it at some point in the next month after i because i accidentally deleted the first one i did but uh (laughs) good thing to highlight fred for sure fingers crossed uh for carrie mulligan i hope she wins that award tonight yeah and i guess i don't have a lot of other recommendations because i was like playing catch up on all these other movies that like aren't that good, but like are getting nominations. Like I watched the little things yesterday morning, which I didn't like, but I, it was, oh about, yeah, it, yeah. It, was it, it was about to go off of HBO max. So I'm like, I don't really want to pay for this, uh, but I want to be able to like bitch about it. If Jared Leto gets an Oscar nomination and he got a SAG nomination and a golden globe nomination. So I'm not going to recommend that, but it's like, I was kind of playing catch up on a lot of stuff like that. I saw the Mauritanian though, which I didn't know a ton about going in. Uh, besides like the bare bones of the story where uh, just a, a prisoner that was a suspected of being involved in 9-11 was kept at Guantanamo Bay for a long time, had some uh, American lawyers that came to like make sure his his rights were protected, even if, you know, it's uncomfortable to represent that kind of client. Like uh, Jodie Foster played a lawyer that still wanted to make sure that like our rule of law in America was still followed, even with respect to those kind of defendants. And I mean, it's an injustice and it's a story that should have gotten more attention when it was actually in the news because I don't think a lot of people know about it. And I think it's important to follow stuff like that, though. I will say I found myself, as I was watching it, kind of like tired of this kind of movie that's about like the U.S. government doing bad stuff and not being held accountable. 
I would almost rather that like I'm and I'm not even and I'm I'm fully I'm not even like a person that's coming at that from a bad faith perspective. Like I think the government's feet should be held to the fire when they do bad things. It was just like man, I'm watching like another movie about this kind of thing. Like I, you know, I just watched uh, Judas and the Black Messiah about how, you know, the government just straight up murders Fred Hampton in more of an execution than I even realized. And like nothing bad really ever happened to anyone in the government about something like that. And then I, you know, I watched uh, uh, on top of that, like I watched uh, the trial of Chicago seven. And I think there are like a lot of abuses on the part of the government there where they weren't held accountable. And at the end of 2019, there was the movie The Report from Scott Z. Burns, which, I mean, a very similar subject matter to this had to do with the torture program. Uh, And, like, you know, even the Obama administration, like, they stepped in and, you know, like, made sure people weren't held accountable for the Bush administration. It's just like, man, I'm like, I'm just kind of tired of this, you know. So (laughs) I still kind of recommend The Mauritanian because it's important subject matter. And the guy that plays the the guy that's uh, the prisoner in it – his name is Tahar Rahim, and he's a really good actor. I mean, it's really impressive, and I think it's worth seeing for him alone. I'm just going to say it's just kind of sad. So uh, that's about it. Uh, but I think it might be worth checking out so you can do your due diligence if you want to see stuff that gets nominated. I just can't in good faith say it's going to be like a totally fulfilling experience because it feels kind of familiar. Fred, before we sign off, uh, where can people find your letterbox? Yes, please uh, follow me on letterbox. The username there is uh, Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. Uh, and also feel free to follow me on Twitter if you'd like. That's Fred the German. All right. As usual, as usual I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterbox. Podcast email is rewindmoviepod at gmail.com. Podcast uh, Twitter is at rewindmoviepod. Uh, so send any suggestions our way. Uh, coming up next, I'm not really sure what the next episode is going to be because I'm just trying to you know sort through all the awards stuff, but it'll probably be something that's getting awards attention. So everyone, thank you for listening. Thanks to Fred for joining, and we'll see you next time.